It's me, Alex. Welcome to the Alex Cast Hooray. It is book club number two. This episode, we're doing The Terravada Machine and Other Stories by yours truly, Alex Bolin. All right, so I asked you guys for questions and comments about the book that I can answer uh, in a kind of uh, break from, well, there's no tradition. We've only done one book club previous to this. Uh, I'm going guessless. I thought this would be a good idea because we're doing a book I wrote and I thought having somebody else in studio for it would be awkward just because of the, you know, what they take from the book and what I intended. I feel like there'd be a power dynamic issue wherein if there's any kind of disagreement, it's like, you know, the disagreement would go to the writer, which I think is not the way that writing and reading should be done. I'm of a firm belief that once a work of art is out, it's in the public, uh, ready for digestion, it is no longer under the sole kind of management or ownership of the artist that created it. So if you put out a work of fiction or anything like that, and the audience that reads it takes something in there to mean something that you didn't intend or get something extra out of it, they are correct. They're just as correct as you when you wrote the story. Now, this does have certain limitations, obviously, because some people could have just read it wrong. You know, there are, there are ways in which people can be wrong about what you wrote. But for the most part, especially when you write in the style that I do, where it's not as concrete as a lot of other writing their interpretation is as valid as mine once the story is out there. So I thought not having somebody in the studio would be smart. This was a dumb idea because I got um, two people asked questions. And they asked good questions and a lot of them. But uh, that's, that's not a very good showing from the audience. Shame on you, audience. <laughs> Uh, it's my fault. Uh, this was uh, well-planned, but I guess poorly thought out. Um, I really should have had a backup. I should have thought of someone to come in if we had no questions. But I guess I'm just going to try to do this for an hour, because that's how long the full episodes are. But solo shows on the show tend to only go half an hour, so we'll see. Um, this... Yeah, well, let me just ask you before this, before I get into the full discussion of the um, of the book, I'm leaning towards this is the end of book club because of the lack of response, and not in like a like a penalizing way. It just um, is this not working for you? Uh, as as listeners, because I still have like there's like a bunch of you that listen, or at least a bunch of you that download the show that that don't interact. So if there's some way, like if you could like um um turn off all your lights at once, and I'll look down from space and figure it out. But like communicate some way if you want to if you want me to do any more of these book club things, because um you know this this seems like you don't care. So. Why would I keep doing things that the audience doesn't care about? Because I could just read books by myself. I, I'm doing that anyway. Uh, so, yeah, anyway, these are the questions I got. Um, I got a very nice – well, okay, let me start with a comment. Uh, uh, Vanessa Kindle uh, said it was a good book. I don't have her quote directly, but basically she said it was a good book. And she would already interviewed me on it, so she didn't have any more questions. So Vanessa's off the hook. Eric Miller, uh, the guy that did the design – um, he said, um, 
as far as comments go, I have to say this book is one of my proudest moments as a, in quotes, publisher and designer. I love the stories in it. The Terravada Machine and Book of Lists are amazing and probably my favorite from the lot of them. They both have so much genuine emotion and personal resonance to me. Well, thank you very much, Eric Millar, for the comment. That's how you do it, kids. Comment away. Alex Coopersmith asked me eight questions, and I'm going to go through all of them. I might not answer some. Oh, you know, maybe I should uh, give a little preamble before I start answering questions. Much like the Alex Cass, I say the Alex Cass is warts and all, which is why I admit to having, a, you know, the, the audience not reacting and being disappointed. You know, I, I believe in being open with you guys. I believe the same thing as being a writer. There are certain things, however, that I can't answer definitively, and I may be a little dodgy. I may dodge a bit, because dodgy, you know, you get what I'm saying. Uh, just warning beforehand that there's certain things that I think, it's not that I'm protecting anything, but I think would ruin the story if I answered. Uh, that I think kind of some of the magic gets wiped away to know what's going on behind the curtain, you know, um, if that makes any kind of sense. Which I hope it does, because I thought that was very, you know, somewhat clear. So I don't even know if there are any questions here. I thought I saw one that I might not answer. Some but anyway. So plowing forward, uh, Alex Coopersmith uh, in the Terravada machine. What was going on with the main character uh, was sitting with the strange man. His girlfriend spoke to him, but he couldn't understand her. And why did the guy try to grab him when he stood back up? Um, I can answer that. That, ooh, this, ooh, this is exciting. I can answer that because that's just like a straightforward, that's not like some mystical thing. The way that I pictured it is that inside of that, what happens on the blanket is operating in a different time frame. So the kind of slow, weird speech is kind of garbled because they're operating either slower, faster, or maybe slightly in a different dimension or something along those lines. Um, that was sort of what I was picturing. So that's when the speech got all weird and, and odd. Um, why did he grab him when he tried to stand up? Uh, I'm not going to answer that. That's up to you. I have an answer, but this is one of those ones. I don't think it'll ruin it, but, um, I know what I think, but it's, it's up to the reader. Uh, number two, what did the machine represent and where, uh, and why were the guys building it so easily destroyed? Yeah, I can't answer that either. I can't answer that. Do I want to answer that? Okay, I'm going to answer it this way. Ooh, look at me. I'm going to be cagey. Later in the Terravada machine, it is there's an update at 49 days of the wife's pregnancy. And I guess you guys all know this, that this is going to be completely spoilerful. So if you haven't read the book, you probably don't want to listen to the end of this if you plan on reading it, but no one read it, so it doesn't matter. Um... 49 days is what, in certain kinds of Buddhism, they believe uh, it takes for either the soul to seat when uh, you become pregnant, and it's also the time in between bardos, or up into the bardo and the afterlife, which are probably the same thing in a reincarnated cycle. Um, that's my answer. Um, you're going to have to figure it out for yourself from there, but that's that should get you on the right path. Uh, why did you make a point to have the main character note how his sandwich hurt his mouth? There's a really good observation, and I'm going to give a little, I'm going to give some secret writing tips to the audience. I wrote that as, um, I don't even know what I call it. I don't have a term for it, but I'm going to make up a term right now that I'm going to call it um, weighted details, weighted details, weighted with a GH. That I wrote that because sometimes when you eat rye bread, it hurts the corner of your mouth if you take too big of a bite just because it's toasted rye. However, that's not why it's in there. It's in there because certain details can happen, and this happens in a lot of stuff I write, and, and you pick it up in other writers too if you're really paying attention. J.K. Rowling does this a lot. Um, uh, Murakami does it as well. Um, I'm sure there's a bunch of others I can think of, but uh, let's just leave those right there for now is that that detail can either mean something or not mean something, depending on what the reader takes away from it. Now, that may sound like cheating, and if it does, then sorry, because that's the way writers do it, or at least a lot of writers do it. So that it is a weighted detail, that that detail can either add to the equation of what you're taking away from the piece, 
or it's just an observational point of the nature of rye bread. But given that I left it in, I think, and given the nature of the piece, I think you can kind of go, well, this is a comment on the fragility of ban or something. I mean, I'm just pulling that out of my ass, but like, so, so yeah, it's a weighted detail. So you can go back and look at that. Uh, periphery is full, full of them where the detail can either mean something or not mean something, depending on which way you're taking a story or if you want it to mean something. It's not, it's not a, it's not a plot point, but it's certainly could help the plot. Um, that's the, probably the best way I can explain it. Uh, why do the men stop working once one of the men was crushed? Uh, same thing. Uh, you're going to have to answer that for yourself. Uh, did the color blue represent something throughout the story? Yes, but the blue... F- hmm. I'll say yes, it does. Though I can't really go into detail. Because again, this is one of those things of... Uh, I think it would be answering too heavily what the actual, what I think the main narrative thrust of that story is. And if you have that, it kind of takes away from the story as a whole. So, uh, but yes, uh, the glow, uh, the blue glow does have a kind of a direct meaning and probably multiple meanings as, as what most of the things I write are. Um, why did you choose the censor names in the book of lists? Uh, um, oh, and a pervasive thought. Uh, I forgot I censored the name in pervasive thought. Uh, pervasive thought. I don't remember censoring the name in there. Let's do book of lists. Perva- well, I mean, I can't answer pervasive thought is um, the idea behind there is thinking of. We're talking about the concept and the intrusive memory, not the actual person. And I think kind of personalizing that idea with their name throughout the piece allows them too much character identity, even though you're kind of, you can build a character a little bit, but like the, the, the point of that piece is the intrusive thought, not the, the remembering, you know, the, the remembering the dead girl, not the dead girl, which it sounds like this is, you know, I think I can be somewhat just justifiably, um, um, criticized for saying I fridge to the girlfriend too often, which is the phrase people use for um, killing a female character to make an interesting narrative. And people say it happens too often. And I, you know, I'm certainly guilty of that. Um, but I tend to use it as like this kind of metaphor for depression or like for the kind of the weighty, weightiness of life less than an actual person, which is why I keep the name out, at least for in a pervasive thought. In the book of Lys... Um, is that he can't, the main character can't handle even considering her name. Even though he says it, like, in the book. The idea is, like, that even though it's not written from his perspective, it's kind of written from his perspective. Like, it's not first-person narrative, but it's it's describing him and his and his story. So the name not being there the entire time, I feel like is like, is, it represents her absence, that that black block is like what it feels like in him, that she's gone. Uh, If you read the original version of that, uh, you see her name start to appear towards the end, and I think that was wrong of me, and, and and I think I just, I did it inarticulately, but we're dealing with the version in the book was originally towards the end as he got more accepting of her being gone that he can start kind of the name can kind of come back and she can start being instead of being this empty void that all it is is pain you can start to refill that void in with like happy memories you know it's what happens when people are gone um so yeah that's why that's why they're like that and that's why they're kind of sense use this like sensor bars because you can think of that as like a void this emptiness instead of um they originally were like asterisks which i think is also good but i think the bar was a better choice um Eric, uh, the guy that I read from earlier, he and I discussed this at length, how to do that. And I think it came out well. Um, Is the place of lost things located in the same area as the town in periphery? That is a very good observation. Uh, The answer is no-ish. I'm going to have to describe some... Okay, so 
in the Void Sutras, the first collection of stories I put out, there is a piece called, um, hold on, I brought it out uh, today because I thought I, I somewhat wanted to like read from it today, 43. Um, yeah, it's called Objects of Debatable Existence. And um, you know, here, I'll just read the first paragraph and you'll understand. And this is going to get back to periphery as well. These are the, this is the one thing that combines my work. Okay. Objects of debatable existence. I work to sell the broken and forgotten things. The store exists to sell and to have seen the broken and forgotten things. I've worked here for longer than my memory allows. I'm the curator of the small, fog, sea glass, small slivers of tin, and an assortment of pebbles and pop tops, all collectible in this land of fractured concepts. The cur curator, the follower, and the engineer of shelves, we all live as if by some purpose. We all create the, this place to be the variable which holds the value of the things which have shifted tense. We sometimes use math in place of emotion. Um, and then it goes on from there. So, in the Book of Lists, Thomas, who I think that's his name by the end of it. I really should know that off the top of my head. I, my characters change names so fucking often. Sorry, I shouldn't be swearing right now. But anyway, Thomas, if that is his name, is traveling from the West Coast to the East to go to the place of forgotten things. Something that he read about in a book. That book is the Void Sutras. I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving this out now. This is information. However, that book is not the Void Sutras that is sitting on my table right here in my, you know, that I just read from. It is a fictional writer that wrote a fictional book that featured that piece or a piece like that. It's part of the kind of multiverse thing that I put into everything I write. That everything is dreamlike in its existence. So. When he's so when they're at the diner in um, in the book of lists and they're talking about the writer that sat at the booth and was mopey or whatever, that is a reference to fictional me. Fictional me also exists in the periphery universe. Fictional me is in the periphery universe writing at the same time as John the Younger is doing the events of periphery. So the towns are in the same area of the world. It's it's in the Burnt Over District in, in New York, but a fictional version of the Burnt Over District in New York that exists within a fictional work written by a fictional author. So it's two steps down. So um, the Book of Lists exists in the first fictional world. And in that first fictional world, a fictional writer wrote, also wrote periphery that makes it two steps down. If that follows. So it's fiction into another fiction is where periphery is. Um, it's thoughts like this. When I write that make me realize that no one's ever going to read my work. And <laughs> it's too complicated. It's not complicated. You can understand it. It's just, if you want to know like the way that I view it, that's the way I view it. So yeah, and in like just a real way, the Vernover District is in uh, upstate New York. I don't know if it, the term upstate applies, but it's in New York that isn't the city. Um, it's where a bunch of like weird religious things happened uh, back in the day, uh, referenced in Periphery. I'm not going to get too deep into it because we're not talking about Periphery right now. Uh, I picture the town from the Book of Lists as being there. Now, the reason I brought up Objects of Debatable Existence is that's the – before – the Book of Lists. That was the only story that took place in the periphery universe, as it were. And I think the kind of that writing style kind of started there a little bit. Uh, so that's the through line is objects of debatable existence, periphery and the Book of Lists all share a kind of commonality to it. Weirdly enough, I kind of think the Terravada machine exists in the same universe as periphery. Like, I feel like that weird apartment above the closed down diner or coffee shop, whatever called it. Um, I feel like that could, like, like John the Younger could have walked past that and I seen in Periphery. And I wouldn't put it past me to have actually written that. I may have. Because they all blend into one giant story. It's confusing. I'm a bad writer. Uh, in the Mandela Effect, uh, um, part five, how did it tie into the rest of the story? Um, so part five talks about this um, religious leader that nearly took hold in Portland and he was kind of chased out and things didn't really work out. It's not directly related to the rest of the story. It's more related to the idea of the, the universe that could have been. Um, if you read comic books, that's almost like a, a what if comic. 
is that could have been this massive positive thing that happened in the universe and didn't because of small little tiny things um, in the same way that we can kind of in the Mandela effect universe, like these small little tiny things create schism universes. This could have been this giant thing and we missed it. So there's no way to know how big it was. You know, that could have been the next Jesus or whatever, the next prophet Muhammad. Uh, but it wasn't, it, nothing happened from it. So it's this, um, I don't know, this kind of reference point. It's also, if you're, if you're familiar with this area, well, HBO just did a documentary on this. You probably know the, the Rajneeshas, um, there's kind of an overlay there where they went bad, where it could have gone well. And it's not a direct reference to that, but that sort of thing. So it's more of a, um, like where I talked about weighted detail earlier, this is kind of a, um, uh, kind of weighted reference where it's, you could take that out in the stories, the, the plot or the A to B and the, the narrative works the same, but the, feeling and the meaning isn't the same won't aren't the same whatever um if that makes sense i keep saying that that makes sense it's hard to talk about writing i should have had a guest on uh and last what was in the green drink at the place for new isotopes um i'm gonna say um it's like a fifth of hope uh an eighth of despair bitters um, and, um, Brandy, just cause, just for Hephaestus. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah. That, I, I can't answer that question, obviously for real. Uh, it's, it's, um, all of the things there are alcohol, but they're also emotions. So, uh, take your pick. I don't, I don't really know what, to, you know, that's what it is. But uh, most of the thing, the, the Terravada machine, the actual short story, just think about 49 days for the soul to seat. That's why it's referenced there. It's important. It's not important. It's dumb shit I wrote. All right. So the other uh, contributor, we've got Steph Quick, uh, frequent uh, contributor to things. Uh, you may see her on the Alex Cass Facebook page. She has written me in, in Steph Quick fashion uh, what I'm going to refer to as a whole crap load of stuff. Um, I'll just start at the top. I did read this earlier, uh, but I didn't do a very good job of like distilling it out to like things I can answer or comment back. So I'm just going to go for the whole thing, word salad and all, because, um, I don't have a lot else to do uh, for this episode. Uh, but I got sad that no one was answering. So I stopped show prepping. I was just going to skip this. I was literally just not going to put an episode out. Uh, but then I realized I was lying on my couch, uh, watching football. I don't even like football. I'm like, fuck, I'll just do the goddamn show. Uh, Eric's coming on soon. We'll have a good episode together. Uh, I have a really fun next episode, but we're not talking about that right now. Okay. How did you start writing magical realism? Uh, Did you do so from the start and then discover the genre, or did you make a conscious decision to move more in that direction at some point? Uh, I had no idea what magical realism was. Um, It it was not uh, remotely anything I was familiar with. Uh, I guess I had read stuff that was... No, that's not true. The first, yeah, I was starting to write what I think later I realized was magical realism. Um, yeah, because Void Sutras is nine years old, and I re- started writing that like probably two years before some of the proto stuff, maybe even three. So, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, yeah, I, I had no idea about uh, magical realism. I started to get comparisons when Periphery came out. I started to get comparisons to Haruki Murakami. Uh, not a lot, but, you know, more than zero. And as, uh, especially so, um, I forget what book it was. The Hardwell Wonderland and the End of the World. Um, I think there's some kind of similar stuff. So I ended up reading that after Periphery and I'm like, oh, fuck, this is super similar. And then reading the rest of Murakami, uh... I can see why some of the more emotional stuff I put out there draws the comparison. And, and again, this is, I'm going to say maybe five people have, have told me that. And I think three of them heard me reference the first two on the show. So really it's just two. Uh, at some point I read Richard Brodigan and this is kind of my, uh, also you asked me what my strongest influences are. I think Brodigan, as far as like this writing style, that like the kind of magical realism kind of thing. I don't even know if people even count him as that. But In Watermelon Sugar is a huge influence on me. And I don't remember when I... I think I started Periphery by the time I read that. 
Murakami, I read all of it after Periphery because I try not to read stuff that is too close to my voice or because I don't want to like um, corrupt the voice I've developed with other people's stuff. Um, so yeah, Broad Again, great. Um, um, yeah, I don't know. Oh, then you asked, what is the first magical realist piece that you read? How old were you and how did it affect you? I, I can't answer that. I, was, I think I was, I, yeah, I was writing that. So I was in my 20s. Uh, I had been writing what I guess would be magical realism before before that. Uh, my other influences that have nothing to do with magical realism, though, it, um, I was huge into this sci-fi fantasy writer called Roger Zelazny. And he is not a great writer, but he's a great thinker. And is it, he, he reminds me of, um, it, it's kind of like pulp sci-fi almost, but like it's he's really deep in the kind of, once you get past the kind of choppy writing, the ideas behind it are super deep. And some of his writing is really good, like when he decides to be good. But I think he's one of those guys that just like, you know, pay, paid by the word, kind of like early Phil K. Dick type stuff. Um, but he was a big influence on kind of the way I think a little bit. Um, and I think writing wise, um, <clears throat> I certainly don't write anything like him, but I think some of the kind of the way he story structures or view things kind of led some weight um, I noticed you have a very precise use of sensory detail in your stories, especially the Terravada machine. Uh, the vivified, engaged engineers are associated with blue light, the smell of ozone, and burning rubber, and humming vibration in contrast to the dust of their crumpled husks. How do you decide on what details to emphasize and which senses to depict? Boy, I wish I had a really great answer for this, but it's just what serves the story or serves the scene. Um... One of the reasons I started writing when I was young, <clears throat> I mean, I've always loved writing, I've always loved reading, but one of the main things that drew me to writing is because I suck at art. And there's certain kind of pictures I get in my head that I wish I could make a painting out of or an animated thing. And uh, I can't, I just don't, it doesn't translate, it doesn't come out right. And so I kind of, I write to make that picture that I see as clear to other people as possible when I think it's important for them to have the same picture. So like, the blue light and the ozone and that sort of thing. I think that's kind of universal, but that's why I don't describe the kind of machine or I kind of describe it as being kind of city-like, but it, anybody can, anybody can picture that differently, but the blue light and the ozone are specific. And I think it's just to kind of, I don't know. I think it, I think it's just evokes the right mood. I think ozone has a very specific kind of, yeah, I don't want to say mood again. There's an emotion to ozone, and I think like it's in, it's like a machinery to it, and I think that kind of fits the kind of tone of the Terravada machine. Um, yeah, I, I, like for periphery, I try to do. Yeah, so I just try to like choose the ones I think will, you know, uh, force the ideas that I need forced into people's heads. Sometimes I don't know how effective it is, and I also think it's there's a grounding tactic to it. When, when you talk about, like, you know, a crumpled bit of paper, you, everybody knows crumpled bit of paper. And I don't know if that's in there, but I'm just using that as an example. That 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 puts you at the table with the person with the crumpled piece of paper instead of just saying he read from a paper. Like, it just it gets you there. And I think it kind of involves the reader more in the story. Um, but there's no real – it's just what pops in my head that I think needs to get the point across because I can't do the painting of it. Uh, you continue. You continually create an outside of time feeling in your stories by setting the action in or around abandoned spaces, liminal buildings, closed cafes with no one yet picking up the space to use it for something else, apartments where the landlord has given out cash and rent checks and lets the tenants remain, or spaces populated with old devices, card catalogs, uh, or furniture and decor of previous eras, worn linoleum linoleum counters, the plywood and plasterboard 1970s. Where do you find this imagery? Is it something you continue to run across, or is it all from past experiences? Have you had the good fortune to encounter any of these spaces in real life? Uh, no, it's just kind of made up. <laughs> I, I, again, sorry to this is going to burst the book, but maybe this maybe this creates more magical thing for the writer. I just get it from my brain. No, it's all it's all from me. Um, the um, yeah, I wish the, the only the only real kind of no, it's just, yeah, I just invent it. Uh, like the, the apartment buildings, like I lived in a shitty apartment building that looks nothing like what I described, the plywood, plywood and plasterboard 1970s. I was just trying to think of like what a shitty apartment would look like. And, you know, oh wait, no, that's not even, 
I just realized I'm describing something from a different story that you guys haven't read yet. <laughs> um, but anyway, the point is, uh, Wordline Only Encounters, it just, I feel like that evokes the, the look of that place. It's kind of like we were talking about, like, smell or, or touch earlier. It kind of puts you in direct contact with the scene. And liminal spaces, I think, and it, it, you know, it's good that you paired that with timelessness, is I think that that allows you to be a little bit kind of unfettered with the way you view the story. And I think I think writers that kind of make you writers that just tell you a story, you know, like the A to B meat and potatoes kind of writers, I find boring. And allowing the user to kind of interact with the story, bringing their own meaning into it is the thing that I find gratifying about the process or one of the things I find gratifying and using liminal spaces and kind of timelessness allows for that. Like I was, you know, I brought up earlier with the kind of weird time bubble in the Terravada machine is I like everything like that. I like layers of universes stacked on top of each other. Cause that's so, I don't know that maybe that's how I view the world and I'm just realistically d- depicting it or, I just feel like that's the way that people can appreciate the story I'm telling is to have it be free floating, like have it be, you know, this it's it's liminal, you know, it's again, and that's also adds to the abandoned abandoned buildings aspect of things I bring in is, you know, what's more, what's more off, you know, what's what's more unsettling in in a world, especially in like a city area where you know an abandoned building. I mean, a lot of things more unsettling than that, but like it is intrinsically weird. Like in Portland, like everything is is getting built up, knocked down, and just vast condos are being put up and apartment buildings. So the idea of like there just being like this closed building that's been there forever, especially like like a closed cafe with all the stuff still in it. There's something to me like unearthly about it. It's it's creepy. It's almost a, it's ethereal, and I think that that gives that gives the kind of flavoring to the story that would be difficult to come by with just using like kind of plot and dialogue so there's a lot of rambling um okay this is her quoting me the study was picked up by the scientific media the scientific media was then picked up by everyone else everyone else then told my mother I love the way this passage creates an image of waves of information radiating out and then back to their target, similar to the way seismic waves travel out from the initial shock. This radiation towards a target resolves at the climax of the story. How do you develop these types of images and weave them into the structure of a story? Um, I mean, you almost described it there is um, like, so that's a, that's a quote from the Great Portland Earthquake uh, talking about a seismic study that was put out and then how news trickles down and eventually it gets onto like a Facebook wall where people get it confused and misunderstood and, you know, and then start freaking out and telling their, telling their children about it. Um, I mean, to me, if, yeah, it, how I come up with it is just, I feel like, um, like if I were to tell an, like an interweaving story, which happens, you know, my first thought is, I don't know, okay, if I want to do like a really complex story, my first, you know, kind of the images that pop in your head are, you know, I don't know, uh, spider webs, cracked glass, uh, uh, yarn, uh, you know, cross stitch, like um, uh, the, the, you know, piles of those shoestring potato fries, <laughs> some, some pickup sticks. Um and then at the end, you would pick up the stick and the the pile will fall, which there's no way to describe this. Uh, I develop I the images by kind of thinking of the story and then like, what are the images that are best way to tell it? So like the Great Portland, Portland Earthquake is, that part is, yeah, ways of radiating information is, is disseminating of an idea is important to that because that entire story is based around one person's narrative and his telling of other people's view of things like he's the one telling you about how how his mother read the article he's the one telling you about the cat that doesn't like him it's you know it's i don't know i think the idea is also part of like that's one of the few that's first person so it's this um you can doubt the narrator more than if you write in third which i think third you can doubt a narrator as well but yeah 
So, uh, yeah, so that's like, I just choose the image to kind of get across what needs to happen in a way that's not obvious because the idea is it's like, it's like Jungian subconscious stuff. It's like, you know, you utilize a symbol to kind of implant an idea instead of telling them the idea. So like if, if, if a lady walks in a room dressed as a goddess and go, I refuse your call. Uh, people are going to go, oh, he's, you know, he's using like the Joseph Campbell, you know, hero cycle. But if you have, you know, just a, a woman on the other side of a desk and, you know, a refusal of the call happens, it's more subtle and you're calling up the imagery without it being obvious. Um, ba, ba, ba. Okay. <clears throat> The main character in Book of Lists, Thomas, goes through a spiritual journey. Grieving the loss of his perfect lover, he encounters the divine feminine and varied women as he travels towards a mysterious library of lost things. These women all encourage him to pursue his journey. Thomas accepts their love and encouragement and, as a result, communicates with his lover when he reaches his destination. Um, and she's about to go into something here, but let me just uh, – I'm going to continue her point in a second. But um, Thomas is grieving his perfect lover, of course. But I think what people not need to know, but I, I think what I think some people need should think about, because this goes back to fridging the girlfriend thing, is that's we beatify our dead. Everybody that dies immediately is like this amazing person. Oh, everything about them was wonderful. Like all the all the shitty things, all their all their the crumbs in the bed or whatever, whatever. I don't know what people that live together do. I'm 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 alone and we'll die alone but so we're seeing it very we're seeing it through thomas we're seeing yeah so his perfect partner but that doesn't really mean anything i mean she's dead of course she's going to be perfect like you know going back but we we're talking about the the censored thing of like that dark hole where the person used to exist i think that dark hole is also tends to be when everybody is like everything about that person was perfect but who the fuck knows you know she she could have like you know stank ass feet or uh, I don't know other stupid things wrong. You know she could have been super forgetful and it really got on his nerves. But like he's not going to talk about that in the middle of this like near psychotic break grieving process. So I mean not not I'm not trying to be like overcorrecting here, but I think it's an interesting point to make of the idea of how characters are viewed and why you get that information. So. Uh, first-person narration, or at least, you know, the view... It's not like the narrator said, you know, and Dead Ex-Girlfriend was really great. Yeah. You know, at no point, you know, it's it's viewed through Thomas. And you're right. It is um, the unfettered... The kind of unfettered male trying to figure out, like, equilibrium. And not unfettered male in, like, a kind of testosterone way, just, like, um, the kind of unbalanced, you know, yin and yang thing when, like, it's only the masculine... It's it's loss and him trying to like figure out how to find a self balance and I think that's why in the in the story he finds women to talk to more often is trying to figure out how within himself he can be the balanced yin and yang that you need to be a full person and that's where he leads that way it leans that way um, same as you know it goes to that you know that that sensor bar like that empty hole and you need to figure out how to what you're going to do how you move on and. I think a kind of journey and the kind of reconnection with the divine feminine is an important part. All right, so Steph continues. Um, this ref uh, this reflects a particular spiritual esoteric practice taught by my meditation teacher, Leslie Temple Thurston. She was trying to point out to us how when you're in love, you light up on a subtle level and your systems open up uh, to everything uh, without the typical boredom or shielding from, quote, bad ideas, people, experiences, and this response. Uh, oh, and this response, this way of being in the world, is what creates that intoxicating feeling. Of course, we attribute that feeling to the beloved, but it's more that that person is triggering a change in us. So she said that if you were a, Steph uses the phrase, balls-to-the-wall type spiritual person, you could take advantage of falling head over heels by watching yourself and how your systems change, how you relate to the world in the state of being in love, so that you could trigger the insight of how that love is out there everywhere. And all you have to do is relate to the world as you do your lover, and in turn, the entire world becomes your lover. All right, so, yes, and, and she's going to make a point here, too, but learn how to be a little more precise here, Steph. Come on, brevity. It's a soul of what? Uh, the, um, yes, and I think that's a really good point. I think that's why um, you, you find a lot of uh, spiritual people go in serial relationships are just kind of settling a lot because they 
you know, they think they need that other person to complete them. And I think someone answered the rest of your point earlier. It's like Thomas trying to find the completeness of himself. Now, you're more talking about how the kind of, to use the hippie term, raised vibrations of being in a relationship. And that's true. Uh, uh, I miss that feeling quite a lot. I'm not going to like bitch about being alone again. But I think one of the things I miss most about being in a relationship is that, that kind of, that being a better version of yourself and like, you know, that ability to kind of radiate love and you're right. Like how, you, if you could manage to have that feeling without the relationship, you know, the, to view the world, the way you view that relationship would be, yeah, it's entirely interesting thing. Okay. This one always struck me because it is super high stakes. How many people would think, oh, we, I just fell in love super hard, but the real question is how can I turn the circumstance towards enlightenment? Not to mention you have to be on the lookout for decades on and waiting for Cupid to strike, in my case at least. Of course, we're out there, ha, ha, ha. Um, and then uh, she talks about how her teacher was a cougar, which I'm not really sure how that has anything to do with anything. Um yeah, I mean, you don't, yeah, I don't know if you have to wait for Cupid to strike. I mean, a lot of people go out there and find it. I, just because I'm useless at it doesn't mean, you know, other people can't do it. And also, um, yeah, I'm a, there's no end also there. With the, I have no ability to talk about relationships, except for when I write where the entire thing's about relationships. Yeah, I think the, um, a lot of what I write has to do with the, trying to find that equilibrium between, you know, yin and yang. And I'm just using that term, anonymous, like whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, is, is a, is an unbalanced center and trying to figure out how to deal with that. And I think that part of the, I'm kind of, I think part of the reason I like that choose your own narrative version of it is because you can put yourself in there. I think having characters that can be used as templates for just about anybody and just about any search I think makes a more interesting read than um, the kind of straightforward that character is that thing the you know um, you know cowboy with a cheroot that's squinty and shoots people like you can't really put yourself in that that well but I mean you know a grieved you know somebody in grief I think you can kind of you can slot into that well and I think kind of searching for. And I want to say searching for your other half because I think it's important to note because I joke around about this a lot is I don't think finding your other half um, is a necessary thing to complete yourself as a person. I think it's a – I mean and Steph talks about this in the question. Is I think it is an easier way to do it but it also can become lazy or incomplete where you just go, well – Found found my partner. Well, that's it. I'm done. You know, end of journey. And that's that's spiritual death. You know, it's, it's pointless. You have to keep you know forever forever studying. So, um, yeah, I think you can try to find love by yourself. It's just that initial yeah that initial boost of being in love. I think is is that kind of um, momentum thing to get you out of the doldrums of whatever. But you don't necessarily mean it. So all all you all you incels out there, there's hope. Um. Yeah. All right. So that's the end of questions and comments. Thank you guys for writing in. Um, all right. It's 42 minutes. Let me look at the book here and see if there's anything I can tell you about that I, I avoided talking about because I didn't want to give away spoilers. Um, I already said the 49 days thing. I think that's one of the ones which I thought more people would have picked up on that. But well, that's that's not true. What am I talking about? I, I, I didn't think anybody would pick up on that. What else can I tell you guys about? Um I'm flipping through the book right now. Um, oh, uh, here's here's kind of something that's been asked over the years in, in various forms. The characters I write are in no way, shape, or form me, nor are they the same person. Some people get confused and think that because it's a male character dealing with like some kind of loss or you know depressed boy that it's the same guy. It's not. None of them are the same. Um, I know what their lives are like before the story. I know what they're like afterwards. I think the reason people get kind of confused about like if it is the same character in some of the stories is because I try to leave it open enough that you can slot yourself in. So you saw yourself in multiple characters. So in your head, you're seeing the characters being the same thing, which they're not. But am I anybody in the stories? No, I'm not. Except for in the book of lists, we talk about uh, the writer, the one that sat in a corner booth smoking cigarettes and being mopey boy or writing stories. That is a reference to fictional me. 
there is one thing in all of these stories that is based on real life events. And I can tell you guys about this because um, it is very much an Alex thing. So I was showing uh, the book of lists to someone. I know maybe they, no, no, I wasn't even showing them. They had read it, but uh, I was called out that the interaction that happens between Thomas and uh, Amelia, no, not Amelia. Oh, Jesus Christ, Alex. Amelia's from the, Thomas and the lady at the coffee shop in Minia, in, in St. Paul. Uh, I can't believe I'm blanking on her name right now. Sorry, guys. Um, so there's this awkward interaction where uh, the coffee shop lady sa- sa- tells her that it tells Thomas that she's a lesbian because she thought that he was hitting on her. And I was called out for that, saying like that is, you know, shittily written. You know, you shouldn't write for you shouldn't write for LGBTQ people. I mean, it wasn't that the person I was talking to was nicer about it. I'm, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be uh, quick about it. Uh, and uh, But it's really funny because that is literally the only thing I've ever read that happened in real life to me. Uh, I was talking to a lady and was being my normal awkward self. And she thought that I was under the impression that she was hitting on me. So she said in a very calming way, hey, you know, like, don't worry about it. I'm a lesbian. You don't have to worry about me hitting on you. And it was a nice thing. Uh it was very funny, and I was like, oh, fuck, no, this is just, like, how I am, I'm just awkward. I wasn't, I didn't think you were hitting, and it was, like, a whole thing, and it was a laugh, it was great. But uh, I rarely steal stuff from my own life and put it in stories, but I stole that one because I thought, oh, this is, like, perfect. This is, like, a great way uh, to, you know, to, to put it, and, um, yeah, that was the one part that people found weird. I was like, fuck, that was, like, the, the real-life thing. Uh yeah. Okay. So I told you about that. What else can I tell you? I, I see. This is why more people need to write in. Um, book of lists. Uh, it's not, what else? You know, it's not a lot I can. Uh, I probably should be talking right now because I'm going to forget to edit that out. Yeah, I think that's all I have to... I mean, fuck, there's so many other things I can talk about. I just, I don't, I can't think of any, like, specifics uh, because no one really asked. The, I'm really bothered. I can't remember that lady's name. I guess I can talk about character names a little bit. I hate naming characters a lot. So I tend to just ask my friends or I'll steal their names. So there's an officer, Seidel, in the in periphery and that's my friend jess's last name because i was hanging out with her and i needed a last name for like a you know kind of throwaway character not that she's a throwaway character but like it was like hey look i'll put your name in a book it's a compliment uh so she she got that so i tend to um just kind of throw away because i don't care about names i i only remember them because i'm forced to because people get mad if you forget their name but like i don't i remember people much more than their name so if I could describe people as like their kind of, you know, the emotional arc in my head or like what I think of them, uh, like in some kind of, you know, interpretive dance, <laughs> I think that would probably be better. But I'm terrible with names. So especially when I write characters, I like know the character really well, uh, like that coffee shop girl on St. Paul. Like I know that character so well. I know her girlfriend so well, but their names don't mean anything to me. And I usually just are placeholder names. So I'm writing another novel right now. I've already written most of it. Um, I gave up on it to put the, the Terravada machine out. Um, but everybody's name in there is um, like the lead character is Samuel, but his, his, his name is uh, Samuel, middle name, last name. And then uh, somebody else is, uh, is like Jamie, name, name. And then there's name McNamerson. Like I just put in dumb shit. So something that I can totally notice during the editing process and slot in their name. But like I they all have the same fake name over the course of the book. But like and I know who the characters are. I know totally what they are, where they come from, how their actions should be, what their voice sounds like. But I don't care about names. It's, it's never really done a lot for me. Um, that didn't make never done a lot for me. I just said words right there. That was just a fucking word salad of a sentence. What I mean, it's yeah, they never, I never really cared that much. Uh, I just, I, I'm forced to remember. So there's a lot of names where I just kind of throw them out because it's just like, whatever, who gives a shit? Uh, a lot of people do, but I don't. Uh, so there's actually a scene in the upcoming book. I'm, I'm, hopefully it'll last uh, where 
without giving too much away, there's there's a kind of running joke where the lead character doesn't remember the names of other people, so he just starts calling them silly things. It's fun. Uh, yeah, that's it. Okay, so that was the Terravada Machine and other stories. Uh, sorry that I, you know, petered out there. Um, but, I mean, really, it's, let's be real here, guys. It's kind of your fault. You could have contributed, but you didn't. Because, uh, because you're lazy and you didn't, you didn't want to do your homework. That's where, that's where it left us. So that's that. Um, what else can I, yeah, fuck. I can't really. Oh, I've probably talked about it before, but let's be clear here. So Eric Millar did the layout. Um, if you have a paper copy of it, the interior layout doesn't look great and that's not his fault uh the company i used i used a different company that isn't the normal just amazon based one because i was trying to get into powell's uh the local bookstore in portland uh this company is the one that they they use to you know stock their shelves and um they do a real shit job of uh, printing the insides it's what all the books are 100 readable they're great i not no one's really even commented on it but it bothers me and i want to put it out there in the universe that if you do notice that that's not his fault and the cover art is by mel pikama uh, melanie pikama she is great um she also did the watercolor painting that it was the cover of periphery uh I asked her to do it and she had read all the stories in there and she chose the Terravada machine, which is weirdly enough. I mean, not weirdly enough. I guess that's why the book is called the Terravada machine and other stories. Cause she did this great art for it. And, um, I wanted the title to represent the art, but the, the originally was going to be called the book of lists and other stories. Cause the book of lists is the longest one in there. But with the cover like that, I changed it, which is, I don't know how often that'll happen, but there's an interesting anecdote. Yay! Uh, yeah, that's it. Okay, I'm done. Uh, this has been Alex Hass Book Club number two. Uh, if you listen to this and for some what just you know, get in touch if you want me to do another one. But uh, at this point, I, I think maybe I'll just this might this might have been the last because uh, you know, boy, is it hard to have a book club when there's like two people as members. That's not a club. That's that's a menage a trois. <laughs> Uh, sexy, sexy Alex Casmanasatois. Anyway, uh, I've been Alex. You've been the audience, and uh, bye. <laughs>